So I got a request the other day. Somebody was listening to one of the podcasts and they asked me, what is it that I talk about when I go out to schools? Well, there's various programs that I do, but my main thing, the thing that I enjoy the most is I get to tell my story. And what I want to do today is I want to tell you that story pretty much the same way as I tell it in schools. That's coming up on STP Shattered, the podcast. Subscribe, like, and share. Welcome to Shattered the Podcast. Sharing the lived experience of mental illness on a father, a mother, a family. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. G'day and welcome to Shattered the Podcast for another week. I do hope that you're doing well. So today I want to tell you the story that I tell school groups and workplaces when I go out and talk to them. Now, my story changes depending on the circumstances of the group. Uh, Sometimes we're told that a group is dealing with a... Uh, uh, an issue of maybe somebody committed suicide, so they don't want us to talk specifically about suicide. Um, Sometimes the groups are very, very young, so I can't mention certain words and certain phrases. Uh, And other times I have to censor myself because the people that are listening may not fully be able to comprehend or understand exactly what I'm saying. And in that case, it means that it's not safe to tell the story because if I'm triggering somebody else while I'm telling my story, then I'm not doing a good job. I'm pulling them out of the story itself so that they uh, aren't focusing on the message. They're dealing with the impact of the story. And, And it would be very easy to go into a room full of people and just try and make them cry. Um, in fact, it would be very, very easy to do that, but, um, that's not the point of why I tell the stories because I'm not there to make people feel sorry for me. I'm there basically to tell them that they're not alone if they're feeling weird or bad or, um, a little bit different. So I tell my story like this. G'day, welcome, thanks for having me, appreciate it, blah, 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 etc., etc. I grew up in a world where we did not talk about mental illness. It was just not brought up. Yes, we understood that there was crazy people out there, but for the most part, they were crazy for a reason. They were either born that way or they got hit in the head by a tree or something like that, that made them a little bit off. We didn't assume or understand that people might be struggling with their mental health. We didn't even know that it was a thing. Figured that something had to have happened to somebody or something major messed up in their brains. They took LSD, so now they have um, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. We understood that it was a real condition and we had compassion, but we thought it was just for a few people. And when I was a kid, people were still locked away with mental illness, really bad mental illness. So we never saw or heard uh, from or about these people. It just wouldn't have come up. And in fact, so take an issue like bullying. Bullying today is seen as very serious. Uh, You can call the police for bullying. 
when I was a kid in school, bullying was pretty much just a fact of life. You just, you dealt with it. I remember the, I was in grade three, uh, down in Broadmeadows West primary school, down in Melbourne, Broadie West, uh, one of the roughest, um, suburbs in the city of Melbourne. <laughs> um, and there was a sixth grader. I remember he was much, much bigger than me. He was a big, big lad. And he was picking on me all the time, just giving me grief. You know, every time I would do something, this kid would be there and just, he was making my life a living hell. And I wasn't used to being picked on. Um, I wasn't big for my age, but I was strong. I was confident and I was kind of brash, you know, people didn't pick on me, except this kid did. So I didn't tell anybody about this. I didn't tell my dad, didn't tell my mum. The teachers all knew. Um, dobbing was bad. Dobbing was the worst thing you could do. You're going to go tell the teacher on me? Oh, yeah. It's funny the words that came to my head then that they called me that now are completely unacceptable. Guy said, you know, you're going to tell me, are you a fag? Funny. Anyway, so I stood up to this guy and I was completely out of his weight class. I was a junior light featherweight. He was a heavyweight. Um, there was no way I could win a fight. I came out the other side worse for wear, but we got sent to the principal's office for fighting. Now the principal knew that I'd been picked on. It was even the teacher that took us up to, to the principal's office was talking about how Mark didn't start it, but he was the first to initiate violence. Um, and so the principal understood. I've got a tiny little kid. I've got a big kid, big kid, beat up little kid, little kid started it though. So you both get the cuts. Now, if you don't know what the cuts are, this was a particular favorite of the school in Melbourne is the principal would, had a bamboo piece of wood, maybe a meter long. Um, I mean, in my mind, my child's mind, it was like two meters long. Uh, but that's just not possible. So he would swish it in the air and it was really like, you know, it was going to hurt. And then he'd, he'd grab it and he'd bend it, you know, using his muscles going, oh, okay, flexing it. And then we had to stick out our hand and he hit our hand with this bamboo rod uh, six times. It was six of the best. I went first and I just took it. I just, one, two, three, four, five, six. And yeah, it hurt. I, although I don't really remember it hurting that much. I don't really remember the pain of it. Because when it was my bully's turn, I didn't realize that my bully had never had the cuts before. Don't see how that's possible, seeing I got the cuts all the time. And what this kid did is he kept flinching his hand away. So the, the bamboo would catch on the edge of his palm. And whenever you did that, if you flinched, you got another one. 
So you had to get the full force of the cane across your hand. But the thing is, when it when it nicks you like that, and because he was moving at the last second, it's it's all the more worse. So this guy's hand was black and blue. I just remember the principal turning to me and going, he's looking at the other guy like, oh, what a wuss. He looked at me and he goes, well done, Brosnan, go back to class. And it was like a badge of honor that I hadn't cried. I hadn't made a sound. Now, this was the result of a situation of bullying. and. Both of us got the cuts. Nobody talked to me about, oh, how does this feel about being bullied and should we call your parents? It was like, why would we call your parents? You got in a fight. You stood up for yourself. Good on you. You took your cuts. Go back to class. Everything's good. And it was a real mark of honor for me that uh, I could take the cuts. Um. It's funny when you think about how now we look at that and we'd go, oh, the childhood trauma of that. And and maybe there was some trauma. I don't know. Uh, I don't remember there being any trauma. I don't, it doesn't give me bad dreams or anything like that. But it was just the way that we dealt with stuff. We just, you know, bullying. A guy was a bully. I got into a fight with him. I got the cuts, you know. Um don't know what my parents' reaction would have been. Probably not great. Um, my dad was never a fan of us getting into trouble outside of home. Um, but I kind of feel like he'd be proud of me that I didn't um, flinch when I got the cuts. You know, you, you, you have a consequence and you just deal with it. Go, okay, I did something wrong. This is the consequence. Let's go. So it's in this atmosphere that I grew up and mental health didn't even occur to me that it was something I needed to look after. Never was a thought in the back of my, the corner of my mind. It never, ever came up. So I grew up in a great house, an army kid, moving around with a fantastic family. I uh, got on well with my brothers and sisters when I wasn't fighting with them. Um... <laughs> We were just a really good family unit. I finished school, looked at my options, had the world was my oyster. I ended up working with people with disability and acquired brain injury. <clears throat> now, there were two things about me which made me really stand out in that industry. Two things that I had no control over but were seen as a great asset. Those two things were that I was a man and that I was strong. And I looked strong. So immediately I was given the most dangerous clients, uh, the big lads with, with behavior difficulties, the ones that would punch out and kick and scream. And, and they just learned that kind of behavior. So take, for instance, you've got a person with autism. They want a cup of coffee. You're the staff member on duty. It's two in the morning. It's not good for them to have a cup of coffee. So they go out, they go to the coffee pot, they use whatever strategy they need to indicate that they want a cup of coffee. You say no. Well, this person doesn't have the capacity to go, well, okay, that's fair. They just know that they want a cup of coffee and it, if they normally get come out here and point to the 
kettle or do whatever it is that they do, that this gets them a cup of coffee. And if they don't get it, they don't understand. Can't figure out why. What? Why am I not getting my cup of coffee? I ask for so little. You understand me in so few ways that this is one of the few ways that you'll, and you're saying no. Well, they learn that perhaps if they throw the coffee cup, just to get them to be quiet, you'll give them a cup of coffee. Now, they haven't thought about it that far. They just think, well, if I pick up this object and I throw it against that wall there, then that person, that coffee bringer, will bring me coffee. But if I don't do that, I won't get coffee. So they learn these really, really negative behaviors. And part of my job was to work with these clients to try and figure out ways to help them communicate better. So I'd work with them, I'd work with the staff, and we'd work on ways of building better communication. Now, the problem was that I had to work one-on-one with these people. And for the most part, I would just take the brunt of their temper. Because while you're building a strategy of how to work with somebody, you've got to see the full effect of what your decisions will do. And of course, we try to minimize it and we try and protect ourselves. But when you're dealing with a client that has, say, 300 acts of violence, 300 independent acts of violence in a morning period, a few of those things are going to get through. And the fact that I was a man and the fact that I was strong and the fact that I could take a hit and keep going, client could bite me and I would show no reaction and I would just keep going on with whatever it is that we were doing. Client would punch me in the face. I would just keep going on. I wouldn't react. I just, okay, I need you to do this. Now, while all this was happening, I'd never debriefed about this stuff. I would tell funny stories. We'd all have these war stories, these stories of, oh, this happened to you? Well, guess what? This happened to me. And it was always one-upmanship. And and I was working with such extremely amazing people, these women mostly of of strength and grace that seemed to be able to take everything that I was taking and still have a smile on their face. And that was what I endeavored to do. Now, the thing of it was, though, is every once in a while, somebody just wouldn't show up for work. You'd show up and you go, oh, where's Susan? Oh, she's done. She's out. And we would feel compassion for those people. And we would, we would, you know, communicate with them in whatever way we could. Like if you bumped into them at the shops, you'd, oh, hey, man, how's it going? I hear you're doing a bit tough. Fair enough. I get it. But it would, we'd look down on them. We would make fun of them behind their back. Like, oh, I couldn't take it. Oh, geez, guy only held a knife to her throat. That's happened to me six times today. Um, and I'm incredibly ashamed that that's the way we thought about it. Now, there was a time that there was a, a couple of signs that I should have picked up that things were not right in my work environment. Um, One was when I went to Royal North Shore Hospital and I went to the emergency room. And as I was walking in the door, the security guard there, he knew me by name. G'day, Mark. Oh, hey, Mohammed. How's it going? I walked in, the the triage nurse 
Um, and the nurses in the room all turned around, Mark, you're back again. Is it just you or have you brought somebody today? It's like, oh, no, it's just me. Uh, how are you, Karen? Hi, um, Gloria. Great to see you. Uh, the doctors would walk past the room. They'd duck their heads in. Mark, you're back again, mate. Oh, yeah, somebody hit me in the back of the head. I just got to get it checked out, make sure I don't need stitches. When you walk into an emergency room, at a major Sydney hospital and everybody knows your name because you're there so often with injuries either to yourself or to people close to you, then something's going wrong in your life and you need to have a really hard look at what you're doing in your life and go, am I living the best way possible? Clearly I wasn't. Always laughing, always making jokes, always trying to keep things light the other was when my wife came home from work and I was sitting there playing a video game and she kind of screamed a little bit like (gasps) and I'm like what what what's happened somebody broke into the house she goes what's wrong with your face I said what's what's wrong with my face what are you talking about well I didn't realize but um I was sitting there and and I had a black eye had a bit of a fat lip and I'd had a nosebleed from where a guy had clocked me in the face and, and I'd rubbed off most of the blood, but I didn't realize I'd left the blood on my shirt. I hadn't changed my shirt. I not because I was tough. It's just, I forgot that there was dried blood on there. Um, walked into the bathroom. My face was really messed up. I hadn't looked at it apart from just a quick glance in a mirror grabbing a face cloth and kind of wiping my face down at work. And when I got home, I just, I didn't think about it. I just sat down and played a video game. My, I couldn't understand why my, 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 why my wife was so upset by this. It made no sense to me. It was like, this is just what happens every once in a while. I have a great job. I do lots of fun things, but every once in a while, I take a punch in the face. It happens. 90% of the time, I can block it. I should have seen these warning signs for what they were instead of just laughing them off. So then came the day that I suffered an assault in the workplace. And a psychologist told me later that it wasn't this assault necessarily that broke me. The assault was the straw that broke the camel's back. She said, you were broken a long time before you cracked. And I had to have a hard look at that, and it was true. I'd been suffering assaults. Even my first day at work, I got beaten up by this client, massive client, um, who was trying to attack people in a shopping center, and I had to put my body between them and, uh, well, particularly in this case, a little girl. He was going to smash her. Um, and that was my first day at work. So that's what I assumed was part of my job. So I was assaulted. A guy came at me with a knife in the workplace. And for some reason, all I could think was that if this guy gets one mark on him, one bruise, one scratch, I'm going to jail. They're going to blame me. And, you know, that was the world 
in which um, that field of work went. Um, slightest thing, most innocuous thing could get you in massive amounts of trouble, particularly if it was seen out of, con- uh, out of context. It never really happened to me. But on this particular day, I was terrified of hurting this guy. So I felt that I could not fight back. So when he came after me with a knife, I ran into the safe room, quote unquote safe room. Well, he knocked the door down in two seconds flat. It was just a flimsy house door. Um, long and the short of it, I ended up uh, bloody sitting in the gutter. Cops eventually showed up. Now, the thing of it was that the client that had assaulted me had communication difficulties. So when the cops showed up, they weren't able to communicate with him effectively. So they said to me, we need your help to get him to the cop station. And I thought that meant I would just have to walk in the room and he'd be handcuffed and I'd say, come on, mate, we're going into the car using signs and whatever I needed to do to communicate with him. Well, that wasn't the case. I walked into a room. He was sitting there in shorts and a T-shirt, no shoes, no socks. Police left the room. He was uncuffed. This was a guy that minutes ago had been trying to kill me. Um, I knelt down in front of him to tie up his shoelaces. I helped him put on his jumper. I then walked out and said he's good to go. And the cops said, okay, go out to the, take him out to the car. And I did. Now, I didn't know, but I was in shock. I was in robot mode at this stage. I was just basically, whatever they told me, I was like, okay, just whatever. I, I, my mind had been broken so badly that I was just in this robotic kind of, I don't, I don't even know what's going on. Um, I had to sit in the back with him to be taken to the police station. I had to walk with him and put him in his cell. He asked for a glass of water and the cop said, yeah, Mark will get you one. And I did something which I'd never, ever done before, which was to say no to a client for a selfish reason. I'd had enough. Something in me was like, I just need to get as far away from this guy as I can. And that in many ways was like it for me. I went in, I did my statement. Uh, The cops later said how they thought it was remarkable how much I could remember um, and relate to them so clearly. And they were stunned that I wasn't a basket case after the assault. I walked outside the police station. It was Hornsby police station, massive main road there. I walked to the gutter. I sat down in the gutter and I started crying. I basically didn't stop crying for a week. I was completely and utterly shattered. Within a few days, I had a diagnosis of PTSD with extreme depression, clinical depression, um, and extreme anxiety and suicidal ideation. My mind was just telling me, constantly that I needed to kill myself, that I was a failure. Now we think about anxiety and it's easy to go, anxiety, what's anxiety? That's just, I feel a bit anxious. Oh, well, get over it. Well, anxiety for me was like, um, 
It was like an airbag in a car. You think about the flight or fight or flight reaction. It's a natural. It's a good thing. It's something that is uh, genetically built into us to help us live or die in dangerous situations. It's fight or flight. So pretend you're at a football game. Somebody passes you the ball or say it's the kickoff. You have to return the kickoff. You get this burst of adrenaline before you do that. Imagine going on stage. You're about to do a performance. Before you do that performance, there's a rush of energy and and endorphins and and that sort of gear, the adrenaline, and that helps you to deal with that situation better. So stress is a good thing. Fight or flight is a great thing. But for me, it was my fight or flight became fight, and it was like an airbag in a car. Now, you look at an airbag in a car, and I, I'm going to assume that you've seen some videos of, of, of airbags going off. They're violent. They're dangerous. And what they don't tell you is that while they're not particularly designed to knock you out, it's actually a good thing if they do, and they assume that in a lot of accidents, it is going to knock you out. It's, it's a violent smash in your face and head, and it's why they don't let little kids sit in the front seat of a car that's got an airbag, because if an airbag goes off, it could kill them. So this airbag, which is designed to knock you out, to make you all floppy when you crash, because when you're all stiff is when you hurt yourself, an airbag is a good thing, but you never want to be in a situation where an airbag goes off because it's not a pleasant experience. It's violent. And this is what my anxiety became for me. It was like that airbag going off. It was like, bang! And I'd have this flush of adrenaline and I'd, I'd somebody's trying to kill me. Someone's trying to hurt me. And then I'd get mad that someone's trying to hurt me. And I'm shaking and I'm quivering and I'm, I'm stuttering. And that's what my airbag of emotion was like. Now, imagine you jump into a car turn on the engine, the airbag goes off. You've got that flight. You drive around the corner, you hit the indicator, the airbag goes off. And then you, you, you drive along and you know the airbag's going to go off. You know, but you don't know what's going to set it off. You learn to fear the airbag of emotion more than you do that original event that, um, that gave you this symptom. And that was me. The thing is, though, I hated it. I hated it with every fiber of my being, and I I hated myself. And it's a funny thing when you hate yourself. I, I, I went for years without ever seeing myself in a mirror. I, I, I'd looked in mirrors, and I'd, I'd, I'd looked at my face, but I'd never seen it. And, and, and it, there was a time when I, I looked at myself in the mirror and I really looked at myself and I realized I was going gray. My beard had gray in it. And I turned to my wife. I said, you know, I've got all this gray. She said, had that for years. I hated myself so much. I wouldn't even look myself in the mirror. I hated being weak. I hated feeling like I was pathetic all the time. And I was ashamed. Anyway, I tried to kill myself. I had a breakdown. Lost my job. 
my wife was talking to me and she said, well, what would you do if you could do anything in the world? I said, I'd, I'd love to go on radio. Well, two weeks later, I was volunteering at a community station. Uh, my wife had a connection. I was just out there. I was, became a presenter and announcer. A couple of months after that, I got a full-time job working as a drive-time announcer. And I loved it. It was a great job. One day I was interviewing this guy who was an ultra marathon runner. He'd run thousands of kilometers to raise money for mental illness. And, and when I was on air, I was always positive. I, I, was, a, I was a drive time announcer. I was the guy that got on. I was bright and I was fluffy. Um, I, didn't, I tried to make my humor fun, not silly. Um, and I was very popular. I increased the ratings of the show exponentially. Um, I got very well known for the drive time announcing. And, but the thing was, I never told anybody that I was struggling with my mental illness, never brought it up. Anyway, this ultra marathon runner was on the, on the show. And I finished off the interview by saying something along the lines of having a mental illness. I understand how hard it is. And I just want to say, thank you. It was like a throwaway comment, just letting him know that I really appreciated chatting to him. Well, we got all these texts and emails and phone calls from people thanking me for talking about my mental illness. And initially I got angry. Somebody's outed me for having a mental illness. How dare they? Who did this? It turns out it was me. I'd outed myself and I was horrified and I was ashamed. I was like, oh, I better hide it. But I started reading these messages and it was people just so incredibly grateful for me talking about it. And I realized that, hang on, maybe I don't need to be ashamed. And as guests would come in, I would start talking to them about my own struggles off air. And I started to feel better about talking about some of my issues on the air and and it got to the point where I was able to just talk freely about having a mental illness and and it's not like I'd get on the show and go hey welcome to your afternoon let's talk about PTSD it would be more like oh something in the news now mate I know how this feels because I've been through this myself I understand what it feels like and then blah 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 let's go on with the show always bright always happy but always able to acknowledge that I understood mental illness and I understood how damaging and how hard it could be. And it was absolutely liberating. And if I'm in a school, I'd be saying right now, I have to go. But I want to just tell you this last little part of my story. My brother is a soldier. He was in the army and he's my hero. Bravest guy I've ever known ever since I was a kid. We'd be jumping off rocks from the highest place possible, thinking that we were pretty cool. And then we'd turn around and here's my brother coming over the top of our heads. He was always braver than everybody I ever knew. And I knew that he would be brave as a soldier. And we thought that he was safe on a base. We, he's a radio tech. He's in a corps called Ramey. And we thought that he was safe behind um, the base, but we didn't realize that he had to fix things out in the field. So he was out with the soldiers on the front lines most of the time. And the thing is, he was uh, a guy that was supposed to carry a wrench. 
So most guys would carry a gun into battle. He carried a wrench, a pair of pliers, a soldering iron. And he would spend all this time outside the thing. And we just were like, this is not what his tour is supposed to be. Anyway, he came back from, I think, his fourth tour. I spent five minutes with him. And I have to tell you, it's the first time I've ever been glad that I've got PTSD. Because I saw it in him. And I, I could, I, just every word, every action. And it was the first time I was glad that I had PTSD because I could understand what my brother was going through. And the biggest thing for him was just admitting that something was wrong. Realizing that, hang on, I'm wounded in a way that I didn't expect. Not that he was weak or pathetic because he had those feelings. I think he still does. I still struggle with them. But because I understood exactly where he was coming from, I was able to talk to him in a way that he accepted. And I know I said to him one day, I said, mate, I I don't feel like I have PTSD when I compare it to what you went through. I don't feel like I deserve to have PTSD. He turned to me and said, mate, I... I know a guy who both his legs have got blown off. How can I possibly have PTSD compared to this guy? My final lesson that I like to share is that you cannot compare mental illness. You might be listening to this podcast going, wow, Mark's been through so much and he's got PTSD, well, I just get sad every once in a while, so I couldn't possibly have a mental illness. Your pain is your pain. If you are struggling, it is real, and it is vital that you do something about it. Now, you might not have to go down the route that I went down, you know, medication, doctors, psychologists, that sort of thing. Perhaps if I had have thought about my mental health earlier in my career, I never would have gone down that path. But I can't compare. I can't compare to my brother. I can't compare myself to, his, to the guy that he knew that lost both his legs. I can't compare myself to the guys that were killed in Afghanistan. I can't compare because my pain is as real as theirs. It's different. It came about in a different way, but the effect is exactly the same. My life is affected in exactly the same ways. Now, my brother is, as far as I know at this point in time, doing really well. He got help, and it was a hard struggle. For years, he struggled, the same as I did. But every time I call, I can just say, mate, are you doing okay? And he knows what I'm talking about. He knows that I'm not just saying, have you had a good day? So, hey, how's your head going? How are you doing? When we understand mental illness, that is the time that we can truly make a difference in a person's life. Don't compare your mental illness. Don't stay quiet. And if you see something, see somebody that's struggling, reach out to them. You won't be able to fix them but you might be the person that 
makes the difference, makes them brave enough to go get help for themselves. Thank you very much for your time. Blah, blah, blah. That's how I finish a talk. Now, this one's gone on a bit longer than I normally would. Um, but that's the talk that I give in schools, essentially. Things change. Um, for the younger groups, I put more fun into the to the uh, uh, the airbag. I'm a bit more demonstrative, and I'll I'll try a little bit to give them a little bit of a poof, a little bit of a oh oh, so that they understand a little bit of what it's like. Um, I always try and downplay that because I don't want to scare anybody. I'm just so honoured that I have the opportunity to just go in and, and tell these stories, tell these stories to kids that I would never have heard when I was a kid. Perhaps if I had been a kid in one of the talks that we give, the time when my mental health started failing, maybe I would have recognised the signs. Maybe I would have recognised that I needed help sooner. Maybe I would have got help sooner and maybe my life wouldn't have been as affected by mental illness as it has been. Once again, I want to thank you for listening to Shattered the Podcast. So I appreciate the fact that you take the time to do so. Don't forget my book is available on Amazon. We're going to put all the links below. Subscribe, like, and share. Have a great day. I look forward to speaking to you next time. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Shattered, the podcast. I'd like to thank our producer, Meredith Brosnan, our executive producer, Torian Lau, and the band Adelaide for allowing us to use their song as our theme. Go to shatteredthepodcast.com for more information.